For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. Hello, you're listening to Late Edition Crime Beat Chronicles, a product of Lee Enterprises. My name is Chris Lay, and I'm the Podcast Operations Manager here at Lee. With Late Edition Crime Beat Chronicles, we are presenting notable true crime stories, as reported by journalists for the dozens of various Lee Enterprises-owned publications from around America. For this collection of episodes, we're focusing on Omaha, Nebraska, where journalists from the Omaha World Herald newspaper will tell the tale of two sets of brutal double murders that took place five years apart and shocked the otherwise quiet neighborhoods where they occurred. Initially, police were confounded by the crimes, but eventually investigators found themselves on the trail of an unlikely suspect whose arrest was followed by a bizarre and high-profile trial. Episode 4, which you're about to hear, was written by Omaha World Herald staff writer Henry Cordes, based on his reporting alongside fellow World Herald journalist Todd Cooper, and it was read for us by the World Herald's digital director, Z. Long. Now, it might go without saying, but given the subject matter here, and every story that we are going to document going forward, there are some obvious content warnings to impart. Any stray curse words are bleeped out, but otherwise, everything you hear will be fit to print in the newspaper. That said, parents are still cautioned to give the episode a listen before sharing this with any youngsters. And now, here's Z Long reading episode 4, The Breakthrough. The following podcast includes graphic descriptions of violence. It's based on the reporting of the Omaha World Herald and the book Pathological, written by World Herald reporters Henry Cordes and Todd Cooper, and available online through Wild Blue Press. Derek Moyes told very few people about it. He didn't want anyone to think he was nuts. But twice in the years since the 2008 Dundee killings, Moyes had awoken in his bedroom to see Tom Hunter standing right over him. With his wiry frame, shock of brown hair, and round eyeglasses, it was like the boy was right there in the flesh. To Moyes, the vision was so vivid, so clear, it even felt he was there. Moyes didn't believe in ghosts, and he wasn't a particularly spiritual person. In the end, he had to conclude it had all just been a dream, one conjured up by his regrets over never solving the boy's murder. Now Moyes felt he might be on the verge of finally securing justice for Tom and his family. If Dr. Anthony Garcia had anything to do with the killing of Tom, Shirley Sherman, Roger and Mary Brumbach, Moyes was committed to bringing him to justice. Now Moyes was ready to team up with longtime homicide unit partners Ryan Davis and Nick Herford to take a deep dive into Garcia. But Herford and Davis brought much more to the newly formed team. Herford was a solid investigator known for his love of food trucks, quirky sense of humor, and skills in the fast-emerging field of digital forensics, mining evidence from cell phones, computers, and other electronic devices. Herford was the son of a computer programmer. He had also worked as a computer technician a decade earlier before he decided to become a police officer. 
And then, several years earlier, when the police chief decided to assign a detective to work digital forensics, Hertford was a natural choice for the job. He embraced the new role. His Twitter handle was NerdCop. Davis, Moyes' other new right-hand man in the Garcia case, was new to homicide. But no detective was more enthusiastic. Davis would eagerly take on any task thrown at him. Davis also brought to the team extensive knowledge of serial killers, a subject he had written a paper on in college. From 1893 Chicago World's Fair stalker H. H. Holmes to modern-day terrors like Ted Bundy or Jeffrey Dahmer, Davis knew all of them and their twisted ways. Now, Davis, Herford, and Moyes were tracking a serial killer of their own. The new Garcia team sat down together for the first time on May 30th, the day after Moyes discovered Garcia's silver CRV. Moyes briefed Herford and Davis on what he'd found so far. They could all see they had lots to learn. Just who is Anthony Garcia? Understanding his life history and what made him tick would be crucial to establishing whether he indeed had true motive to harm Drs. Hunter and Brumbach. At this point, the detectives only had the barest outline of the man's life, gleaned from the Creighton records. But as the Garcia investigators over the coming six weeks reviewed hundreds of additional pages of records from Creighton and other medical schools where Garcia had spent time, covertly peeked at the doctor's emails and perused his financial records, they would begin to paint a fuller portrait of Garcia. A dominant theme for Garcia's troubled life would also emerge. They would see Garcia had struggled mightily over the previous decade to get his medical career off the ground, and in most of those professional failures, Garcia's firing by Hunter and Brumbach from Creighton University's medical school often loomed large. The detectives learned the heavyset doctor had first arrived at Creighton in July 2000, a full 13 years earlier. While Garcia had graduated from the University of Utah's medical school, that was really just the first step towards becoming a doctor. Any successful doctor needed a specialty. Garcia was coming to Creighton in hopes of completing a four-year residency in the medical specialty of pathology, which would make him an expert on disease and the way it impacts the body. If he finished his studies and then passed his national exams, he would be a board-certified pathologist, his ticket to a lucrative medical career. But as the detectives would learn as they dug into Garcia's background, it didn't take long for Creighton colleagues to begin seeing troubled signs in this new doctor. During conferences with supervising Creighton faculty, Garcia would often cut up like a fifth grader, interrupting and carrying on. When Dr. Shonda Beatra one day asked the jerky resident to get out of the classroom, he refused. It was shocking behavior for someone who had graduated from a medical school. On top of that, Garcia showed lack of basic medical knowledge and seemingly little interest in his chosen field. When it came time for Garcia's six-month review, Dr. Beecher didn't hold anything back, rating his attitude, knowledge, and performance as simply unacceptable. Fatefully, this whole Garcia mess ultimately landed on the desk of Bill Hunter. As the head of the pathology residency program, Dr. Hunter's job was to oversee and mentor all the residents. When Hunter looked into Garcia's background, he wondered how Garcia had ever been accepted into Creighton at all. Garcia had barely graduated from medical school, requiring an extra year to even get through. And Creighton wasn't even his first residency. He had washed out of another in New York before he came to Omaha, a failure he had concealed from Creighton before he was hired. Still, 
Regardless of how Garcia had landed at the school, Hunter, in 2001, also knew that Garcia had now become Creighton's problem. And Hunter, a good-natured man who cared about his students, was committed to doing what he could to help the residents succeed. So Hunter sat down with Garcia in January 2001. He kindly noted all the problems reported by Beatra and others. He gently prodded the young doctor, suggesting Garcia show more enthusiasm for his work. Hunter wasn't impressed with the resident's response. Garcia complained that Beatra and others were out to get him, appearing to have a big chip on his shoulder. It made Hunter wonder whether this student even had some kind of personality disorder. Things only got worse from there. The capper came a few weeks later when Garcia made an error that proved to be a major embarrassment to Creighton. After an autopsy, he left the body of a woman face down overnight, disfiguring her face. An outraged funeral home director registered a complaint with the school. Brumbach was furious, calling Garcia into his office to ball him out. By then, Beatra, Hunter, and Brumbach were all in agreement. Garcia had to go. But it was hard to fire a resident mid-year, as they would have to have legal cause to do so. So they didn't try to do that. Instead, Hunter informed Garcia he would likely not be brought back for year two of his residency. He needed to start making some other plans if he was going to continue his medical career. Hunter's hope was that Garcia would simply leave quietly at the end of the year. Being threatened with termination seemed to get Garcia's attention. At Hunter's urging, the doctor apologized to Beatra and even for a number of weeks seemed to take his studies more seriously. But, despite all the second and third chances Hunter had graciously given Garcia, in May 2001, finally, came an incident that forced Hunter's hand. While a senior resident was in the midst of taking a high-stakes national exam that would determine whether he would be licensed to practice medicine, someone called the man's wife and said he was urgently needed at Creighton. If he didn't report right away, the caller claimed he would be fired. Hunter and Creighton officials quickly traced the call to Garcia, who had been overheard talking about it. It was at the very least harassment, and at worst an effort to sabotage a student's exam. That was it. Hunter the next day prepared a lengthy memo documenting Garcia's litany of failures. University attorneys also got involved. Then on May 22nd, the doctor was summoned to Brumbach's office. Hunter read aloud Garcia's official letter of dismissal. Both Hunter and Brumbach then testified weeks later during an official hearing in which Garcia's termination was confirmed. Garcia? He threatened to sue Creighton, but in the end, he did leave quietly. Then, amazingly, thanks in large part to Hunter, Garcia actually landed on his feet. Just two months after his Creighton dismissal, Garcia was accepted into another pathology residency in Chicago. The ever-gracious Hunter had written a generic letter of recommendation for Garcia and then vouched for him to a counterpart at the school, hoping a new environment might do Garcia some good. Given how he had done all he could to help Garcia, Hunter believed he and the doctor had parted on okay terms. That would be the reason that seven years later when Hunter's son was brutally murdered, it would never occur to him to consider Garcia a suspect. Garcia had beefs with other people at Creighton, but not with him. Other personnel records the Omaha detectives subpoenaed showed Garcia in the end washed out of his new Chicago residency as well. By then, he appeared to be suffering from deeper mental health issues. Absent from his studies for months at a time due to chronic depression, for which he sought medical treatment. In failure, 
Garcia drifted back home to his parents in a suburb of Los Angeles. According to a Garcia email that Omaha detectives obtained when they subpoenaed Garcia's email provider, he worked at home, fixing cars, and debated whether he wanted to continue in medicine. But then, Garcia, somehow again, was able to resurrect his medical career from the scrap heap. In 2007, he was accepted into a psychiatry residency at Louisiana State University Health Sciences Center in Shreveport, Louisiana. Once learning of the LSU residency, the Omaha detectives subpoenaed those records as well. When those records came in days later, they showed LSU eventually became Garcia's fourth failed residency. And significantly, the detectives also saw Garcia's Creighton firing and Garcia's efforts to conceal it was at the center of his dismissal by LSU. Garcia received a temporary license to practice medicine from the state of Louisiana while the state medical board reviewed his credentials. But when the state licensing board looked into Garcia's past, they learned about his firing from Creighton. He had not disclosed that on his application, and he also answered no when asked if he'd ever been disciplined. The state informed Garcia's bosses at LSU they were going to reject his license application due to his misleading answers. LSU officials realized Garcia had made the same false assertions when he applied to school there. So days later, Hunter's LSU counterpart gave him a call. Hunter verified that Garcia had indeed been fired by Creighton in 2001, also during that interview, terming him a weak resident. On February 26, 2008, LSU called Garcia into the office and dismissed him, citing his Creighton omissions. School officials told him he could appeal his termination, but he demurred, quote, I'll move on, end quote. But this time, as events in Omaha would prove, he did not go quietly. As Moyes, Herford, and Davis worked at their desk in Omaha piecing together Garcia's life story, the details of Garcia's LSU firing proved a major revelation. When Herford received the package of records from LSU, he saw the firing date and quickly realized its significance. February 26th was just 15 days before the murders of Tom Hunter and Shirley Sherman. Now it all made sense. It wasn't as if Garcia had stewed for seven years before seeking revenge. There had been a more immediate trigger for the killings. For the detectives, this was a massive development, creating a rock-solid and proximate motive for the Dundee slings. As the detectives continued to follow the paper trail of Garcia's records, they would find an apparent trigger for the Brumbach killings five years later as well. From LSU, Garcia landed back in Chicago, where he found low-paying medical work making house calls on Medicare patients. He could do that because he still had a valid medical license in Illinois from the days of his residency there. After doing that for a few years, he landed another job as a doctor at a federal prison in Terre Haute, Indiana. As at LSU, Garcia at first practiced under a temporary license while the state of Indiana reviewed his credentials. But in the end, he was tripped up by his Creighton failures again. The Indiana Medical Licensing Board in 2012 contacted Creighton to verify Garcia's training. This time, Roger Brumbach gave the response, noting Garcia had been fired from Creighton. Based on that information, the Indiana Licensing Board in December 2012 denied Garcia a license. And just five months later, Brumbach and his wife were dead. For Moyes and the other Omaha detectives, the trail of Garcia's medical records had taken them right to the doorsteps of both Bill Hunter and Roger Brumbach, providing clear motive for both of Garcia's deadly house calls in Omaha 
in 2008 and 2013. Buried in all the medical records was one other tidbit that, while not particularly significant to the case at that time, was at least of morbid interest. During her Hold Nothing Back review of Garcia's work in the lab and classroom in late 2000, Shonda Beecher had actually given Garcia high marks in one area. She noted he showed skill in cutting the tissue samples that pathologists used to analyze in the lab. In other words, he was good with a knife. Establishing Garcia's motive had been a critical step for the Omaha detectives, but that in itself was not nearly enough for them to make an arrest, let alone get a conviction. They would need to find evidence tying him to the crime. Could they prove he was in Omaha on the day of the killings? The rise of the digital age has given detectives a couple of critical tools to prove where a person was at any given point in time in the past. Cell phone calls and credit card transactions. Almost everyone carries a cell phone, and they make purchases with plastic. Find out when and where a person uses them, and you can pinpoint just where they were at any given date and time. The detectives quickly determined that the cell phone number that showed up in some of Garcia's Creighton records was still active. Davis wrote up a search warrant for those phone records. At the same time, Moyes went after Garcia's credit cards. A run of Garcia's name through a credit rating agency showed in recent years he had almost too many credit cards to count. Moyes was soon up to his neck in search warrants, having to seek records from 20 different banks. Moyes could see this was going to take some time. Indeed, the effort dragged on for weeks. But finally, at 9.15 a.m. on June 25th, nearly a month into their focus on Garcia, an email landed in Moyes' inbox. It was from AT&T, a file containing a call log for Garcia's cell phone. Moyes downloaded the records onto a disk and handed it over to Hertford, who was most familiar with such things. He plugged the disk into his computer. With Moyes standing over Herford's shoulder and Davis right behind him, they started sifting through the data. The records didn't go back far enough to cover the Dundee killings in 2008, but Herford soon found that on Mother's Day 2013, there was a single phone call on Garcia's log, an incoming call at 5.18 p.m. that went unanswered going to voicemail. The detective could see the time of the call and it fit neatly into the working timeline of the Brumbach killings, within two hours of when it was believed they were killed. Next to the call in the log were two multi-digit numbers. Hertford knew they represented latitude and longitude lines, their intersection point being the location of the cell phone tower that had routed the call to Garcia's phone. It was, in effect, a digital fingerprint that Garcia's phone had left behind that day. Hertford took down the coordinates, 41.49047 latitude, negative 95.0527 longitude, and then he anxiously typed those numbers into Google Maps. The detectives were nearly breathless in anticipation as Hertford hit send. This was a real moment of truth. It was time to get beyond gut feelings and hunches. If the right result came up, they'd have irrefutable evidence that Garcia had been in Omaha that day. Conversely, if the results showed he was back home in Terre Haute, they'd be depressingly back to square one. On the screen, a map came up. At first, it was zoomed in too closely for them to tell where it was. Herford zoomed out and found the cell phone tower was in China, near the Mongolian border. What? Oh no, wait, Herford said. He right away realized that in his frenzied haste, he had dropped the negative sign before the longitude number, sending the detective to the wrong hemisphere of the globe. Herford corrected it, hit send again, and they all peered intently into the screen. Bingo. 
On the new map that came up, the detectives immediately saw landmarks that were familiar to them. There was Interstate 80, the freeway linking Omaha to both coasts. They also recognized several names on the map, little towns just miles across the Missouri River in neighboring Iowa. The cell phone tower that had routed the call to Garcia's phone on May 12th was located on I-80 near Atlantic, Iowa, just an hour east of Omaha. That's it, Davis said excitingly. We got him. The detective team high-fived and bro-hugged in celebration. For Moyes, this was the breakthrough he'd been chasing for more than five years. Not only did Garcia have a clear motive to kill the Brumbacks, these phone records showed he had the opportunity to do so. And given his physical description, the car he was driving in 2008, and the timing of the LSU firing, he was the strongest suspect Omaha police had ever identified in the 2008 Dundee homicides. In 29 days, Garcia had gone from being just a name on a binder to now being the prime suspects in the deaths of Roger and Mary Brumbach, Tom Hunter, and Shirley Sherman. On our next episode, the task force decides it's time to round up Dr. Garcia. Thanks for listening to Late Edition Crime Beat Chronicles. This series was written by Omaha World Herald staff writer Henry Cordes based on his reporting with fellow World Herald journalist Todd Cooper and read by the World Herald's digital director, Z. Long. You can get loads of other information at omaha.com and links to relevant articles and content can be found in the show notes. Make sure that you're subscribed to Late Edition Crime Beat Chronicles wherever you listen to your podcasts, so you'll be the first to hear our next episode coming out in one week. The show is produced and edited by me, Chris Lay, with tremendous thanks to Henry Cordes, Todd Cooper, Z Long, and the rest of the team at the Omaha World Herald for the work they put in covering, researching, and recording the story. For Lee Enterprises, I'm Chris Lay. If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com slash boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC. Member SIPC.